Welcome to episode 3 of Christianity Without the Baggage podcast by Paul Neal. A narrative for the 21st century. The Bible tells a story. Yes, it is a compilation of many stories in various literary forms, but it is understood by believers as a cohesive narrative that began in Genesis and ends in Revelation. I remember a line used by many a preacher over the years as they waved an open Bible. Do you know how the story ends? We win. A summary of the highlights of the most popular Christian narrative goes like this. God created the heavens, which is everything above this world and the earth. Then God created Adam, and out of his side God created Eve. They were humanity's first parents. They were created in the image of God and they were perfect. They were placed in a beautiful garden called Eden. God told them that they were free to eat of any fruit in the garden except for one. This was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said that if they did, they would die. A talking serpent, however, deceived Eve into eating the fruit. She gave it to Adam and he ate it as well. This disobedience of God's command brought about not only their fall from perfection, but corruption upon the entire universe. This was called original sin and man's rebellion, the fall. All their offspring would henceforth be born in this fallen state and like them, doomed to die. God still loved man, so he promised a savior who would redeem man from sin. The Savior would come from a group of people whom God chose from the rest of humanity for this purpose. Until, however, the price was paid for sin, humanity was damned and condemned to eternal separation from God into the fires of hell. Those, however, who trusted in the Savior would spend eternity in heaven with God. Jesus Christ, the Savior, was born of the Virgin Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He became the second Adam, as it were, another perfect man. Not only that, he was also fully God as much as he was fully man. He was the Son of God. His death on the cross provided the perfect sacrifice which atoned for man's sin and the wrath of God was satisfied. So long as you placed your faith in this atoning sacrifice, you could now enter heaven. For everybody else that did not accept this atoning sacrifice, they would suffer eternal conscious torment in the fires of hell. After spending three days in the tomb, Jesus rose from the dead. He later ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. He will return to earth again in the future to judge the living and the dead. When this final judgment is complete, the redeemed, those that have trusted in Christ, enter heaven. The rest of humanity are damned forever in hell. The entire universe is once again restored to the perfection that was lost after Adam's original disobedience. Like I said earlier, those are just the highlights. But the majority of Christians would not disagree with my encapsulation of what they accept to be the truth in those nine paragraphs. Even as I say this, I couldn't believe that I too, like many, affirmed that story as a foundation of my personal Christian faith for decades. After all, I was taught and I believed the Bible to be the inerrant Word of God. If God said it, 
Well, that settles it, right? How could God be wrong? But one day, I started to think, I started to study, I started to listen to other thinkers, other scholars, other voices outside of my echo chamber. The truth is, even when I accepted the story that was drilled into me, I had serious doubts. To name just a couple, how could God, who knows all things, create humanity knowing full well that the majority would be tortured forever and ever in eternal hellfire? Here's another one. So Jesus atoned for our sins by his suffering and death on the cross. His perfect sacrifice was the only thing that satisfied the wrath of the Father. Did this mean the anger of the Father was satisfied only by the torture and ignominious death of His only begotten Son? I no longer accept the old narrative and as such no longer am confused by the doubts I just mentioned. You see, if you leave the constrictive box of so-called biblical inerrancy, one or more of three things will happen. And these have happened to many Christians. One is you will call the whole thing a bunch of ancient rubbish and completely abandon the faith. I have seen even former fervent ministers like Dan Barker, who leads the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Not only has he become an atheist, but he is a militant voice against his former faith. Others no longer really believe the old narrative but are fearful of going any further. They continue to stay within the familiar echo chamber. If they have doubts, they simply listen or read the works of many eloquent Christian apologists like William Lane Craig or the late C.S. Lewis or Ravi Zacharias and feel somewhat reassured. If they are ministers themselves, they will never rock the boat or share their misgivings with their congregations. Why, they could be labeled a heretic, or worse, even lose their livelihoods. Still others have cried out to the Lord for wisdom. I firmly believe that if you do this with an honest and open heart, this is a prayer that God will surely answer. James 1.5 First, let me clearly state that I still love the Bible and faithfully study it but I have certainly changed a lot of what I was taught to believe about it. To be brief, what we now consider to be the Bible only started to be written down approximately 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. So there were thousands of years of oral tradition that preceded even the first scrolls. And then there's the matter of translation. Anybody who speaks another language, as I do, knows that there are many cases where a direct translation is not possible due to the nuances of each language. The best you can do is convey the meaning as best you can. In doing so, there is always a temptation to insert one's bias. For example, if the translators believe women are not deserving of the same status as men, as did the King James translators, the word brother would be used when the better translation would be brothers and sisters. No honest student of the Bible, be it a scholar or theologian, would say that what was written down was 100% factual, not even those who claim biblical inerrancy. For isn't that what the word inerrant means? Without error? 
I am astounded to listen to teachers who still stick to their guns about its inerrancy, even when faced with evidence to the contrary. Isn't it more honest to say that the truth of God is contained in the Bible than stubbornly saying that it is the inerrant word of God? To hear apologists try to reason around this is like the story of the emperor's new clothes. In this 19th century tale by Hans Christian Andersen, he tells the story of a vain emperor. Two con men took advantage of his vanity by selling him on the idea that they would weave him the most exquisite set of clothes with magic thread. These clothes, however, would be invisible to anyone who was unfit for the work they did. So when the emperor finally donned the non-existent garments, he did not dare admit that he saw nothing himself. Everyone in his court praised the invisible outfit because they all feared for their jobs. So the emperor decided to wear what everyone told him was the most magnificent attire on a royal procession in the city. Everyone in the crowd was in awe of his fine garments, not wanting to speak out lest they be accused of not being competent. It took an innocent little boy to finally say, but he has nothing on. Let's take our cue from this child who had no qualms about speaking plainly. To be fair, biblical scholars who stand on the position of biblical inerrancy call the Bible the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says scripture is given by the inspiration or breath of God. Honestly, I am not sure what that means, but I am 100% certain of what it does not mean. And I am equally certain these scholars would agree with me. It does not mean that God directly dictated that which was written word for word. So were the authors just secretaries transcribing heavenly dictation? So inspiration must mean something else. For if God truly guided their pens by direct dictation, there should be no errors, right? But there are errors. And no amount of explanation or what they like to call harmonization can change that. I have no axe to grind here. I'm just calling a spade a spade. That being the case, isn't it false to call the Bible inerrant if it has errors? I am absolutely not saying the Bible itself is false, but to call it inerrant is. I completely understand why they hold on to this position despite all the evidence to the contrary. For them to say the Bible is not, is for the Bible to lose what they call its authority. Not only that, also to say otherwise would be to lose one's certainty in what they have interpreted the Bible teaches. It may surprise you to know that the Bible is not meant to give us certainty. Are you surprised by that statement? You only have to look at the multiplicity of interpretations of scholars and theologians over the centuries who can't seem to agree on what is certain. So certainty, which is the bedrock of inerrancy, is a mirage. So instead, they sharpen their skills of elocution, debate, and apologetics to respond to the opposition. Like the crowd, they continue to praise the emperor's fine garments despite his being naked as a bird. For my part, 
I'll side with the little boy against this position. Is it any wonder that there are those who just throw up their hands and walk away from the faith in the light of this blatant hypocrisy? Well, I determined to walk towards God and not away. Give me wisdom, O Lord, was the cry of my heart. The most definitive verse that talks about the Word of God is John 1.1. It says, Jesus is the Word, the Logos of God. Also, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, it says that the Spirit of God will write the law, the Word, on our hearts. So isn't it far more proper to say that in the pages of the Bible contains eternal truths that God wants us to have? These eternal truths were encased in the perception and reality and understanding of God of the authors at the time they were written. So it is incumbent upon us to unearth these truths with the perception and understanding we now have. This is how the Bible continues to be relevant and alive, despite the fact that it was passed down and eventually written by ancient peoples who lived in the Bronze and Iron Ages. But far beyond any written word is the Spirit of God which gives life. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says, relying only on the word that was written actually kills. And don't we know it? The Bible was used to justify slavery, subjugation of women, racial prejudice, and extreme violence against one's enemies. It took the Spirit of God moving in human hearts to overturn all of this. As Jesus, the living Word of God, would say, You have heard that it was written, but I say unto you. He promised before he departed this earth to rejoin the Father, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 8. As Jesus is the revelation of the Father, so are we the revelation of Christ through His indwelling Spirit in all of us. This is the Trinity at work here. God created humanity in His image, which He profoundly revealed in Christ and continues to reveal in us. In fact, the Bible refers to us as the temple of the holy breath, spirit of God. Going back to the beginning, it makes perfect sense. God breathed upon humanity and made humanity a living being in his image. In the eternal eyes of God, this creation is very good. God transcends time and space. That's why the ancient writers said to God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Now don't forget, the ancients had an extremely limited perception of creation. They only believed in a three-tiered universe. There were the skies above, also known as the heavens, the abode of the dead below, and of course this flat earth. In fact, they believed that the stars were fixed lights in the sky. Now we know that the universe is so unimaginably much, much larger. NASA says that the farthest objects that our most powerful telescopes can see put the observable universe at about 94 billion light years in diameter. However, an MIT technology report in 2011 estimates the actual universe could be 250 times larger. 
that's 23.5 trillion light years if you're counting our god transcends all of that my point being the process of humanity's creation to humanity's ultimate perfection in god's view happened in an instant to us however it's been a process stretching out hundreds and hundreds of generations and thousands of years the legendary suffering of job was indeed terrible for job while he was going through it and so is it when any human does from a horribly disfigured and diseased child to a starved, beaten and ultimately murdered prisoner of auschwitz from the hardly to the horrible humanity has suffered the atheist will say therein is the proof of the non-existence of this god of love that believers claim to worship for how could such a god permit the untold suffering that humanity has endured through the centuries yada 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 they have a point though indeed if this is the only existence we have then they would be right due to the advances of medicine and sanitation we have a good chance of living to around 80 years give or take today but if you take the average lifespan of humanity through the centuries it's only about 30 to 35 years and by the time you got to that age you looked ancient no wonder they said of life in those days as nasty brutish and short and what if you added pain and suffering to that even the apostle paul agreed when he said we would be the most pitied of people if there was no resurrection most theologians agree that the story of job in the bible is a parable a fictional story that teaches important lessons or principles like the parable of the good samaritan or the prodigal son to summarize job is a good man who god allowed to experience the terrible suffering of the loss of his children his wealth and his health even to the point of his body being covered in sores after a period of time god blesses him once again with good health more children and even greater wealth than he had before while he was in tremendous pain however no one around him offered him comfort his so-called friends told him his misfortune was his fault and even his wife told him to curse god and die to Job's credit, he never openly blamed God, but he did bewail his suffering and gave voice to the unfairness he felt in his heart. God's response in a nutshell was to describe the big picture as he, God, saw it. Job's momentary suffering was infinitely minuscule compared to that. Remember, the story of Job is a parable, and in the end, he was fully restored to a much better state than he had before let me put it another way would you trade a few years of suffering and in return receive a thousand years of unimaginable health and wealth what if the return was a million a trillion perhaps how about everlasting life you see from god's perspective he created a perfect creation in his sight that's why he deemed it very good we who are moving in this sphere called time are experiencing the process but in the eternal dimension of god it is already done again quoting the apostle paul our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us romans chapter 8 verse 18. 
It's quite amusing to hear scholars and theologians debate about what happens to us when we leave this earthly plane. To be fair, absolutely nobody knows for sure. One says we will receive temporary bodies that are replaced with eternal bodies at the final resurrection. Another says we go into what is known as soul sleep to be awakened again at the final raising. To this simple believer, it really is simple. We have the example of Christ's own resurrection. I do not believe it was his same mangled, beaten, and crucified shell of a body that rose from the dead. And I believe scripture bears this out. That broken body was the one laid in the tomb. What rose that faithful Sunday morning was a glorified new body one that could easily travel in and out of this dimension governed by time to God's eternal dimension. Look up the scriptures where he passed through walls, also when he appeared to hundreds. How about his ascension? In the light of our 21st century understanding about the cosmos, it would be ridiculous to think he went up into the sky. As Carl Sagan said, even if he traveled at the speed of light, at 186,000 miles per second, Christ would still not have left our galaxy. If you believe Christ returned to the Father, he simply traveled interdimensionally. And since that dimension transcends this one, Jesus has never left us. Also, the Apostle Paul said, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So where do we go after we die? My guess, and remember, All other views are simply guesses as well. But my guess, based on my understanding of Scripture and the resurrection, is this. We simply go to be with Jesus in His eternal dimension. We die in this world, so that body returns to dust, whether by natural means or cremation. The real you simply becomes a new creation in eternity with God. If anyone is in Christ, That person is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The main truth of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God for humanity. He is the Word of God and has made God known to us. Everything in the Bible centers upon the ultimate truth of Jesus Christ. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God created humanity in his image as his perfect creation. In Revelation, the last book, humanity is symbolized as the spotless bride of Christ in eternity. Throughout this process of the perfection of humanity, God entered our dimension of time and interacted with us culminating with God himself taking the form of humanity in Jesus Christ. So rather than base my faith on a narrative which literally asks me to suspend my belief to believe, here's how I really see the truth that God wants us to have from Scripture. When you peel away all the layers that have been unavoidably infused by human understanding and perception at the time they were written, we have the rock of Christ to stand upon. 
What we should not have, as Greg Boyd called it, is a faith based on a house of cards. In a house of cards, you take away one card and the whole structure collapses. For example, must you really believe the Adam and Eve story with a talking serpent as literal fact? Would your entire faith be undermined if you stopped believing that? How about the six-day creation story or the one where Adam actually gave names to all the animals? These are but a very few of the stories that many Christians base their faith upon because the Bible is supposed to be the inerrant Word of God. The Bible reveals the truth of Jesus Christ. I do not have to get bogged down in the details of the writer's perception and understanding of their time in history. Here, therefore, is a simple narrative for the 21st century that I can base my faith upon as revealed in the Bible. The God of eternity created humanity in his image and gave them stewardship over planet Earth. That is a more proper translation of the Hebrew word rana and not dominion, which is understood by many as domination. Sadly, as we all know, and as history has borne out, we have not been good stewards or managers of the earth. Instead, we have dominated and subdued one another through endless wars, tribal factions, and the oppression of other inhabitants of the earth. We have also pillaged the resources of this wonderful planet in the name of greed that God has given us to manage. So God entered humanity's dimension of time in the person of Jesus Christ as the revelation of God's unconditional love. His life and example serves as the way God wants us to treat and respect one another. In so doing, we will also be good managers of God's creation. When Jesus returned to God's dimension of eternity, he promised never to leave or forsake us. And he hasn't. He has kept that promise, for we have the Spirit of Christ residing in us now and ultimately for all eternity. I'll see you at the next podcast.